You've tuned in to The App Show. I'm your host, Mike Agarba. We're Canada's number one app and mobile tech radio program. And we've got uh, a cool show coming up today. We're going to be chatting with Brian Jackson later on in the program about NFTs and Amazon. NFTs uh, standing for non-fungible tokens. These are kind of like digital contracts. It's been used a lot for things like collectible digital art, but has had a bit of a crash over the past year as uh, crypto uh, has uh, basically gone into the, the toilet. Well, it looks like Amazon is betting that it's not going away anytime soon. It looks like they're going to be launching an NFT marketplace. So Brian will uh, be going through uh, some of the uh, potential uses for that and why they might be getting into that uh, space. And we're going to be talking about digital payments and cyber fraud. We've got uh, a great guest on from MasterCard. Her name is uh, Aviva, and she will be telling us some really interesting statistics about how we are using digital payment technology and uh, some of the issues around cyber fraud, hacking. And it's it's interesting. It's important that we we do learn about this because of the pandemic. Uh, we have seen a huge exponential increase in digital payment uh, technology and adoption through the pandemic, basically because that's how we had to pay for things. We couldn't really go in store, and there was the whole uh, thing about uh, uh, you know non-contact uh, as well. So that really sped up non-contact uh, payment technology too. But it's uh, also kind of opened up the door to more instances of uh, cyber fraud. So we'll be exploring that and how that kind of relates to business uh, as well. But let's uh, talk about some of the uh, the mobile and app news. TikTok uh, in the news once again. And uh, you'll recall that uh, the Canadian government basically has banned the social media app for all, from all government devices. And for those who haven't used it, it's a very addictive uh, social video app. I think they've got over 1 billion monthly users now around the world, and it just keeps uh, growing. But what makes it uh, very addictive is the algorithms uh, they use to really hone in on the type of content uh, that it thinks that you like to watch. I use the app myself, and it's spooky at how good it is at just kind of serving up stuff that uh, I, I like, different types of uh, content. But as you can imagine, being that addictive, that might not be necessarily good for children. And they've come out and said that they're setting a 60-minute time limit, time limit on screen time for users under 18 years of age and adding some new parental controls. I, I guess that's a good thing, but... If you kind of dig down a little bit, these limits are kind of more like suggestions. So even though there's a 60-minute time limit, young users can continue to use the app even after the screen screen time limits have passed. (laughs) So uh, basically... Uh, the 60-minute time limit, time limit uh, warning will come up, and uh, all the kids have to do is enter in a passcode, and they can just keep uh, watching. I don't know how I uh, I feel about that. Uh, there are also limits on 
the age that kids can start using it. Uh, for users under 13, a parent or guardian will have to enter a passcode every 30 minutes to give their kids additional screen time. No parent code, no TikTok. Uh, if you want to find out more information about that, uh, Vox.com has a, a really uh, good article kind of going through some of the, uh, the details. It looks like Apple is launching a standalone classical music app on March 28th. Kind of interesting. Uh, so this will be dedicated to the world of classical music. Uh, this is, is uh, something that uh, they're launching. They've acquired a music service called Prime Phonic back in 2021. And they're trying to, I guess, take a, a bite out of uh, Spotify's lunch. Spotify's the kind of dominant music streaming or subscription service uh, out there in the world. So it looks like... Uh, Apple is uh, trying to specialize uh, a little bit. You still will be able to access all this music through the uh, the Apple Music uh, main uh, app. But uh, again, for those folks that are into classical music, uh, you'll be able to use this uh, specific uh, app. Uh, it will be streaming at up to 192 kilohertz at 24-bit high-res lossless. Uh, and it also will include thousands of spatial audio recordings which uh, for the classical music buffs, uh, I think would be pretty appealing. So keep your eye out for that. Apple uh, also launched a new iPhone 14 color, yellow, I guess just in time for spring. I don't. If you have a chance to check it out, uh, Google it. It's actually kind of a, a nice uh, different uh, color for, for smartphones. So uh, hopefully we'll be uh, checking that out uh, sometime, sometime soon. Also uh, in the... Uh, app and uh, gaming news, Microsoft is uh, looking to purchase uh, one of the big gaming companies out there. Uh, and that gaming company is called uh, Activision, Activision Blizzard. But one of the biggest games in that uh, catalog is Call of Duty. And you'll notice that the the big video game guys, and that would be Microsoft and Sony, they are buying all the video game developers and publishers because they know in the future their hardware is not going to matter as much. And even now, you can buy cloud gaming subscription services to their platforms. So essentially what that means with cloud gaming is that these games are being hosted on super powerful servers and you'll be able to access and play them on pretty well any screen device and it won't really matter the power of the screen so you'll be able to play these games and you already can on tablets smartphones uh, even uh, computers that uh, again aren't as powerful as the the game consoles because it's essentially streaming the content down to the the device but uh, sony is upset about this Call of Duty uh, because it's, it is one of the biggest games out there and they're concerned that Microsoft will use that to make a, uh, a crappy version of it for Sony PlayStation. So that uh, is uh, going through the courts uh, right now. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, kind of uh, all pans out. Also uh, in the, uh, the app news, uh, we have had a chance to uh, try out this really cool feature. And if you're into podcasting or audio recordings, I encourage you to uh, check this out. It's from Adobe and it's uh, a free 
web-based uh, app, and it's uh, called Adobe um, Podcast Enhancer. You can Google that. Uh, so if you've ever taken a recording and the audio is not great, maybe there's too much echo, you can basically upload it to this uh, service and uh, get it to enhance it. And I've actually used it on a few of my radio segments uh, when the guest doesn't have a great connection, and it is magical. So you'll have to check that out. Again, it's the Adobe uh, Podcast Enhancer. So uh, I encourage you, if you are into audio and need to kind of make it a little bit better, check it out. It's free. Okay, we're going to have to take a break. When we come back, we have a lot more to talk about uh, on today's uh, program, including protecting yourself from fraud. Back after this. You are back with the program. Mike Agarbo here in studio. We're broadcasting live across uh, Canada. We're going to talk about uh, cyber security, cyber fraud, and uh, protecting digital payments. We've got a great guest on the line today. Her name is uh, Aviva Klein. She is the Vice President of uh, Digital Payments and Cybersecurity for MasterCard. Thanks for joining us today, Aviva. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, So I know when a lot of people think MasterCard, they're just thinking like, the credit card <laughs> that uh, they might have in their wallet. Uh, but, I mean, you guys are so much more, really. We definitely are. I mean, we definitely love to have people think of us uh, in a credit card context, and we thank everybody who has our cards in our wallets. Um, but the reality is that MasterCard really is following following a beyond-the-card strategy. Um, we operate uh, not just credit cards, but debit cards, prepaid cards, commercial cards, and then, of course, beyond-the-card um, we also have a number of lines of businesses um, around uh, peer-to-peer payments, uh, account-to-account payments, disbursements. Um, we have uh, obviously a huge cyber and intelligence uh, line of business um, that we've invested in heavily over the years uh, in order to protect our network. Um, you know, people who use credit cards use them because they trust the network. Um, and significant amount of investment dollars goes into safety and security solutions to ensure that that trust is maintained um, and that we fight fraud and keep fraud off of our network. So you guys have uh, commissioned reports along the way, I, I guess, uh, to uh, help guide uh, what, uh, what what you're doing. Um, you know, so today we're kind of talking about protecting digital payments uh, and also, you know, some of the challenges businesses have uh, as well. But what are some of the key things that you have found? Well, so why don't I take a step back and explain sort of why we did this study in the first place? Um, you know, we we started this study um, earlier this year, and we did it because we know that the cybersecurity risks are continuing to evolve, to evolve, excuse me, um, as is the vulnerability to fraud. Um, and and so we really wanted to take a step back and understand, you know, what are the major uh, forces that are shaping this landscape, um, as well as, you know, trying to dive in to better understand how, you know, there's a, there's a, a really a convergence, right, where consumers are trying to balance security and convenience while business leaders are really trying to protect their customers and their own businesses from security, or uh, sorry, uh, from from fraud and cyber attacks. Um, and so it's really in that converged area that we wanted to explore and understand more about what's happening in the market today. And one of the things that we found was actually that cybercrime has increased by approximately 600% due to the pandemic. Um, 600%? 600%? 600%. 600%. Oh my God. Yes. Wow. 
And that, that, that was, it was, there was a couple of uh, forces behind that number. Um, the first one is that, you know, during the pandemic, there was um, a lot of shifts in terms of people working from home, um, working, dialing into work um, on unsecured networks. Uh, we also saw a significant shift away from face-to-face -face payments because everybody was at home, um, but people still needed to buy things. So a significant increase in, uh, you know, card not present, digital commerce, e-commerce, which um, is, you know, more susceptible to fraud. And so those two uh, events uh, really did lead to a significant increase in um, cybercrime. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's interesting. You know, the pandemic, uh, you know, obviously not a great thing, but in some ways it did accelerate uh, certain industries and technologies. Uh, obviously, from an e-commerce and payment uh, perspective, uh, I, I think we've seen those advancements. But to your point, uh, a 600% increase in in, uh, in, in fraud uh, is uh, is incredible. Um, but just talking about uh, people working from home uh, as well, which, you know, we've seen that dramatic shift. Uh, we do it at our work. You know, we're three days in and two days uh, at home. But to your point, um, not all of those at-home computers are protected properly, are they? No, oh, they're not. Um, you know, one of the fascinating things that we uh, learned about in this study was about passwords. Um, and so, for example, we learned that only about half of consumers, 45%, change their passwords when prompted by the platform. Um, and many, many, many consumers use the same password from one site to the next. So if you're compromised on your email account, it's really just a hop, skip, and a jump away from your bank account. Um, it, particularly if you're using, um, you know, the same password. And what's even more interesting is that even when people get hacked or compromised, many people are not changing their passwords. And this is sort of, again, where, we're, you know, we talk about this intersection between businesses who are trying to protect themselves and trying to protect their customers by raising the bar in terms of um, password uh, proofing. So we continue to see like, oh, you know, before you needed like six characters. Now you need eight characters plus a number and a special character. Um, and so, you know, you've got these businesses who are trying to raise the bar on password protection, but you've got consumers who are just so tired of keeping track of all these different passwords that we're creating this environment of, around password fatigue, which is likely why we see uh, you know, vast majority of people who don't change their passwords frequently. I don't like doing it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm guilty of using the same password for a few different, uh, accounts, but you know, where do we go from there? I, I know biometrics is a, a big thing. Are people ready for that? People are ready for that. Um, I think people are, um, you know, interested in simplicity in less friction um, in their consumer experiences. But at the same time, I think they are a little bit reserved in terms of, you know, what does this additional data, where is this additional data going? How can this additional data be used to learn things about me um, or, you know, to, um, or even against me at some point in the future? So I think it's a, I think that people are generally, um, excited about biometrics, um, but still have a little bit of fear around that. Um, so just to give you some stats, 71% uh, of consumers feel comfortable using their fingerprint to unlock the phone. 56% um, feel comfortable in regard to face ID. 
Um, and the report also found that over half of consumers, 56% to be exact, uh, wish more platforms offered biometric security as opposed to, uh, to passwords. But there is still, I would say, a, a little bit of latent fear around the unknown and the newness of this technology. So you feel they're kind of more concerned of like what's happening, like how protected is that information really, like their their faces and their fingerprints? That's right. And could that be used in some other area? And what most people don't really know is that that actually doesn't really, those biometrics, they don't actually leave the device. They stay on the device and they're confirmed on the device. Um, so the so the imprint of the fingerprint or the face ID is taken on the device and it's matched on the device. And once it's matched, then the authentication takes place and the proverbial door will, will open, if you will. It's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, there's no question I have password fatigue. I'm also getting two-factor authentication fatigue as well, you know, when I'm uh, trying to log in, uh, you know, to certain e-commerce sites and, and what have you. Um, just the fact that I have to then go and, you know, answer a text or uh, an, an email. So I'm personally kind of excited about the biometric side because I just see that as kind of more frictionless, you know what I mean, to, to make all that uh, that happen. Absolutely. I mean, I will say that two-factor authentication is a best practice uh, practice. Um, but we do see fraudsters becoming much more sophisticated and able to take advantage of one-time password insecurities um, and be able to overtake that text message and enter in, you know, one-time password on behalf of the real consumer. So I don't think two-factor authentication is necessarily going to go away, but this notion of either a static password or a one-time password will likely uh, we'll see reduction in use of that modality uh, in favor of biometrics uh, because people are are tired of having to type those things at it. We're talking with Aviva Klein. She's uh, over at uh, MasterCard all about uh, cybersecurity and uh, preventing fraud from happening. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to then kind of dive down into the, the business side. You know, How is this all impacting business and what can they do? You're listening uh, to The App Show. We'll be back right after this. You are back with the program. Mike Agarbo here in studio. We've got a great guest on the line with us today. Her name's Aviva Klein. She's uh, a VP over at uh, MasterCard uh, in charge of uh, digital payments and cybersecurity. Thanks again for uh, coming on the program. Pleasure to be here. So, you know, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the challenges uh, as far as preventing fraud when it comes down to things like passwords. And obviously there's solutions kind of swirling around there that, you know, you guys are uh, very involved with. Uh, maybe let's just chat about uh, the, the business side now. Uh, you know, how is this impacting business? You know, you said there's like a 600% increase in, in uh, cyber fraud over the past uh, couple uh, years here. Uh, you know, this is obviously costing businesses millions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, look, businesses are a major target of attacks. And the reason for that is, is that fraudsters are in it for financial gain. And so if I'm a fraudster, I'm going to go where the money is. And so it's much more lucrative for me as a fraudster to look at a business and attack a business than it is to attack um, an individual. Um, and so that's really why businesses, and I would say particularly small businesses who think that they are too small to have attention by criminals um, are particularly vulnerable. Our research shows that the average cost of a data breach in Canada is just over $5 million. 
Um, and um, as I said before, small businesses um, are very susceptible, but also young businesses. Businesses that have less than five years of tenure report a higher rate of being hacked um, than than older businesses. Um, and and these breaches are, you know, a five million dollars is a lot of money uh, for the average company, um, but they're life threatening for uh, enterprises. And you know, it's it's obviously there's a financial component to being hacked, but um, there's also a significant reputational uh, impact. Many many customers have said that they will not, you know, deal with a company that's been hacked. Um, they just you know, many, you know, consumers are very aware um, of what happens when companies get hacked and their credentials are harvested, which, you know, then actually lead to payment fraud um, or other types of fraud. And um, customers are very aware of, you know, what businesses are doing to protect them, protect their customers. Um, and as I said before, they, uh, they're not interested in dealing with businesses who aren't taking safety and security seriously. So obviously some of these larger companies, uh, you know, major retailers and, and, and e-commerce sites, they've got people and teams that they, they dedicate to, uh, you know, obviously cybersecurity. But, you know, where it really hits what you were saying for me is just the small business. Like a major data breach could be, uh, I mean, it could shut their business down essentially. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not just from, you know, the financial loss, as I said before, um, but the trust factor with their with their consumers um, is significantly eroded. Um, and 82% of consumers say if they don't trust a company, a company to protect their data, they just won't buy from them anymore. I, you know what the problem is I, I have with that statement? I think just about every big company has been hit by a data breach. You know, just every day you hear it in the news, right? You do. I mean, it is, you know, it's, we're really at a, um, at a boiling point, um, particularly in Canada, as you said, we have seen a number of large retailers, uh, be hit, but you know, there are other retailers that haven't been hit. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, are doing the appropriate things and, and have the appropriate safety and security and protocols and controls in place to protect their employee data and their consumer data. But what would you say to small businesses? Because I think a lot of small businesses, they're just trying to grind it out and just trying to get the, the revenue in. Um, and I think, you know, some of them might think, oh, all this cybersecurity is like a huge extra cost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And they I might do. not even understand it. Yeah. So let me try to break it down a little bit. Um, I think that there are a lot of easy, low-cost, high-value things, activities that small businesses can do to help protect themselves. And we already talked about one, passwords. Um, you know, making sure that they are changing passwords, that the even the small group of employees that they may employ, that they are changing their passwords is crucial. Things like two-factor authentication, um, super crucial. Any type of system or cloud so service that they are subscribed to, if two-factor authentication is an option, you should be opting for two-factor authentication. Things like software patching, making sure that you're downloading, you know, the patches in a timely way, even auto um, auto enablement of patches um, is a new feature. 
Um, I think that's super important. Um, what's another one? Um, fishing awareness is a huge, fishing is a huge, huge, huge problem in Canada. Um, and many people don't realize, like, if you click on that link and that link has got malware in it, you know, there are serious consequences against that. So having small businesses um, invest in education um, around, um, you know, really thinking twice before they or any of their employees click on text messages or emails that they come that come into their organization. Those to me are sort of, you know, low cost, high value activities that small businesses can undertake to better protect their company, their employees and their customer data. I mean, it's almost like, you know, if they have a physical physical retail store, like making sure that you have an alarm system and you have your, you know, the right locks on your on your doors. Like you wouldn't have a door without locks. You probably wouldn't have, uh, not have a security system. So just even like a small amount of attention to some of the things you said uh, could save them, you know, literally thousands of dollars or their business for that matter. Absolutely. Um, you know, we have a, a a product at MasterCard called My Cyber Risk, which um, allows a small business to evaluate their cybersecurity posture. And when we talk to customers about this product, we talk about it like exactly in those terms. It's like the neighborhood watch of digital, right? So we have a capability where we can look at your, um, you know, internet-facing assets, your websites, and things of that nature, and we do a drive-by, and we can look at all the publicly, you know, available information to see how secure your how secure you are and what your cybersecurity posture is. And so, as I said, we call it sort of the the neighborhood watch of of digital. And so, it's just that, you know, driving by. Does your doorbell work? Is there a is your upper window in your home open? Is there a ladder next to your house? Like those types of that's the analogy that we paint. And it's really, really important for you know, businesses really of any size, I would argue, to be aware of um, their cybersecurity posture and have an active digital security risk assessment done on their business. And in fact, in our in our study, we noticed that 92% of business leaders do currently have a digital security solution implemented at their business and have conducted an active digital security risk assessment. But what's super interesting, and that number is actually really high, I mean, 92%, that, that's really, um, you know, wonderful, but it drops incredibly quickly. Only 39% of business leaders have ongoing vulnerability assessment tools implement, implemented at their business. So there are companies who are taking sort of point in time snapshots of what their cybersecurity posture looks like. Um, but nobody, so I shouldn't say nobody, but much, much fewer, 39%, as I said before, business leaders continue to do that on an ongoing basis to just stay up to date. You know, is that, is that proverbial doorbell still working? Is that, you know, the lock on the front door still functioning? Um, it's critical for businesses of any size to, to really have a good understanding of, of what their cybersecurity posture looks like. Yeah, no, it's it's important, and consumers should be aware of this as well. Like, you know, when businesses get hit, um, they're the one that take the, the the brunt of of the losses. But at the end of the day, that typically, eventually, gets passed down to the consumers, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and consumers are you know taking time to evaluate how they approach their personal data protection. Uh, most consumers are now looking to have the ability to opt in or opt out. 
um, of their data being used and shared by companies. And, you know, people are mainly worried about identity theft and data breaches um, at retailers, as well as, you know, any kind of stolen personal information. Um, and, and you know, the average consumer is really expecting businesses to step up and make the investments that are necessary to instill that high level of trust between the um, business and the consumer to make them feel comfortable about transacting with that business online and sharing personal information with that business. So if we had to summarize, like what are what are some of the key takeaways of, of, of this report that you guys are referencing? I think to summarize the, you know, cybersecurity is definitely on the rise as we move into a more digital environment. Um, I think, you know, the fact that small businesses um, are vulnerable to cybersecurity attacks, it's not just the big guys uh, who are vulnerable. Um, the fact that, you know, less than half of businesses have ongoing vulnerability assessment tools, um, to me, is is shocking uh, and something that I think a lot of businesses should be investing in uh, to help protest protect and build trust with their consumers. Those would be the big takeaways for me. We've been talking with Aviva Klein. She's a VP of uh, Digital Payments and Cybersecurity over at uh, MasterCard, uh, just about uh, kind of the state of the nation right now when it comes to cybersecurity, not only for uh, consumers, but uh, importantly, businesses uh, as well. We've seen uh, these stories in the news literally every day about uh, a business uh, getting hacked. So I think it's important that we all take stock of what's uh, happening now, especially with the acceleration of uh, the digital economy uh, since the pandemic uh, has started. So in many ways, it's been great that uh, digital payment technology and e-commerce has advanced uh, so dramatically. But at the same time, as Aviva uh, you know, referenced, we all take you know a, a bit of responsibility in making sure that uh, you know our, whether our business is protected, uh, our, our phones or even our personal computers are uh, up to date and, and secure as well. Uh, Aviva, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Mike. When we come back, we're going to be talking NFTs. Probably haven't uh, heard about those for a little while since uh, a bit of the crypto crash last year. Well, we'll be chatting how Amazon is getting into an NFT marketplace and what that all means. We've got Brian Jackson coming up right after the break. You're back with the program. Mike Agarbo here in studio. We're going to uh, bring up a a technology that we haven't talked uh, about for a few months, uh, mostly because it's kind of crashed. NFTs, non-fungible tokens. We've got our NFT expert on the line, Brian Jackson from the Infotech Research Group. He is with uh, the Infotech Research folks. They're a global advisory company. Thanks for joining us uh, today, Brian. Always glad to be here. So NFTs, what happened? I mean, they were a big thing. People are spending millions of dollars buying some of these little collectible uh, NFTs, uh, uh, that were available on the internet and the blockchain. The bubble burst, right? Yeah. I mean, there was a time I remember talking to you about NFTs when it was all the rage and it seemed like everybody was releasing an NFT project, non-fungible token. It was like blockchain is going to change the world. Web3 is the new thing that's transforming the way the internet will be experienced. And we're all going to get rich off these decentralized finance projects as well. Not so much, it turns out. A lot of scams happening in the NFT space. Let's be honest. A lot of these 
crypto coins weren't all they were caught out to be. There's a lack of regulatory oversight in this space. And it got overheated and there was too much speculation. But that's not to say, Mike, that blockchain and this concept of a non-fungible token aren't useful somewhere. And in fact, a lot of big brands are still pursuing how to tie these NFTs into the brand experience and give their audience, give their customers a chance to have a little bit of an equity stake in the brand. You could think of it as like a supercharged loyalty program where your customers literally own equity in the project. So Amazon's getting into this. That's the report. Yeah, we haven't confirmed this with Amazon yet, but this report's out this week about how Amazon is preparing to launch an NFT marketplace in April, perhaps April 24th, and it could be called the Amazon NFT marketplace or the Amazon digital marketplace. And they're considering having 15 NFT collections available at the launch in the US and then expanding to other countries. Now, what's so interesting is what will those NFT collections be, right? And what sort of spin will Amazon put on its NFTs. I don't think this is going to be like OpenSea, which is just an open market for any NFT creator that wants to come and market their collectibles uh, for buyers. I think that Amazon's going to be doing something very specific to support one of the many brands that it owns. So let's remember, this is a company that owns MGM, right? Are they going to tie this into gaming or uh, some sort of uh, hotel and luxury brand experience. Or maybe they'll go in the gaming direction, right? They own Twitch, where people watch video games streamed from online players all day long. So could they perhaps tie it into a video game sort of uh, experience for people? We'll see. And I guess there's some reports that they would tie them into real-world assets. Yeah, as this well. is the idea. You know, like Nike is dead, right? So Nike... They bought um, RTFK, um, and that's an NFT company that uh, they're using to embed an NFT into each one of their clothing products. And, you know, it's sort of like when you got that pair, those pair of Nike shoes and then it tied into your Nike Plus app and it could measure uh, your jogging and your, your training and have the sort of that digital experience. Well, now they can do that uh, sort of digital ownership component to the physical thing that they sell you, whether it's a t-shirt or a pair of shoes. And uh, couldn't Amazon perhaps have that type of brand experience since it already has obviously the world's biggest e-commerce marketplace? Why not add on, layer onto that with an NFT experience that would enhance or maybe give you some sort of loyalty connection to all the different brands that Amazon offers on there? But is the world ready for NFTs? I know at, at its core, NFTs basically just kind of like a digital contract to, uh, that is on a blockchain, uh, essentially, just to kind of verify whatever you're purchasing, whether it is a physical good or some sort of digital collectible. Um, I think the majority of people, and I would say like the vast majority of our listeners, don't care about, about this. 
Yeah, and I don't think that the NFT can be the main thing that draws the masses into this, right? Most people aren't going to care about owning a little bait piece of computer code that proves that I own something that you don't own. It has to be more than that. You have to feel connected to a community. You have to feel like you have a piece of ownership over something. And what I think that Amazon, a brand as big as Amazon is going to do here is abstract away all this technology component, not really talk about NFTs and focus on, uh, you know, owning that particular aspect of it, but focus on what is the customer experience that we're using this technology for and what will it lead to? Let me give you a quick example. Porsche, you know, luxury car brand, it wanted to connect with its uh, buyers using an NFT program. So it launched um, this NFT and you bought a little digital collectible version of its 911 uh, convertible car and you could customize it however you wanted. You know, it could make it look unique to you. And not only did you get the NFT collectible, but when you bought into that, you became a member of this Porsche design club, right? So now you have influence and you're part of this user community that can help Porsche decide what type of user experience are we building in the future for our drivers? And what sort of designs do you want to see on future Porsches? So it's making people feel like they have some say in the breath. But do you need an NFT for that, though, Brian? Really? Well, what an NFT does is it uh, gives you true equity, right? It's not something that the brand could take away from you. You have proof of that ownership, and you could tr sell it, right? You can sell your stake to somebody else. So it equals the playing field, right? And yes, you could organize loyalty programs without it. And of course, some people have already done that or we've done that for years but this is a different level of doing it and it's done in a way that um, things are really proven and people can own their own um, membership in something they can prove that they own that membership and they can transact with this sort of certificate of authority but it's got to be simple right like I, you know have you ever tried to buy an nft <laughs> oh yeah i have yeah. many times and, yeah you gotta be yeah, a rocket scientist <laughs> yeah, it's can be a pain, right? And it, like anytime you're saying, okay, well, I have to buy this cryptocurrency and then so I'll get the, the membership on this exchange and now I'll uh, convert it to this other cryptocurrency and I'll also install my MetaMask wallet and now I'll, you get all your addresses lined up. That's just too much and Amazon's not going down that path. And that's why part of the rumors, part of the reports that are coming out here are that all of the interactions will be like a normal e-commerce experience where you can complete it with a debit card or a MasterCard. We've been talking with Brian Jackson all about uh, NFTs. Are they coming back? I, I don't think they're ever going to go away. Amazon's getting into the game as well, so it'll be interesting to see how they make that all hop happen with all their different uh, divisions. Brian, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. That was Brian Jackson from the Infotech Research Group, a global advisory company. That's all the time we have left. Don't forget to uh, visit our website, getconnectedmedia.com, to listen to all of our radio shows and uh, check out all our videos. We'll see you all next time.